how can I improve my tactfulness and compassion? As I don't know who you are, so I don't, I don't know how far down the rung we're starting here. Um, uh, If <laughs> I would just say this, what? No, we got a panel up here. I'm not saying nothing. How would you, if you were, if you were wanting your tactfulness and your compassion to increase, what would you say, Brandon Harrell? What would you say? Tactfulness and compassion. <laughs> that only happened one time, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, honestly, honestly, and I, I'm not speaking from a place of knowing what that is, because I lack action at times. I lack compassion at times. But the answer is the same for all of us, wherever we're at. And it's learn of Him to take His yoke upon you. And yeah, and and here's I was actually just talking about this with Brother Derek um, be willing to take it on the chin when you're dealing with people I found most of the time if I have conflict with especially with the lost world uh, there's going to be conflict with them because of our message but a lot of times I react to their reaction negatively and what's the old saying? You catch more flies with honey. Um, be willing to take wrong, I think is the way Paul put it in Corinthians. And until you're willing to do that, then there's some things you don't need to confront and deal with, right? But just be willing to take it on the chin. You're going to take some blows in ministry. You're going to take some blows in giving the gospel. Um, and if you, I'll sum it up this way, then I'm going to pass it to somebody else. It said of our Lord, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And so there's, there's a good summation. Yeah. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? Yeah, personally. I think a lot of times we put ourselves in the equation, and I've been guilty of that. And uh, when I take it personally, I'm going to usually react instead of acting. And so I think that's a big part of it. If we move, remove ourselves from the equation and realize whatever it is that needs to be dealt with or whatever we're doing, it's not against us. If it's something that's wrong, it's against the Word of God. And so we need to approach it with wisdom and compassion. And uh, that would be my thought. Try to, and I know that's hard to do, especially whenever it's something that you're passionate about or you feel like it's been a direct attack but to remember you're a representative, you're an ambassador, you're not there trying to push your own program, you're there trying to follow and fulfill the word of God in your life and the lives of your people. So I think that helps you to be tactful and to have compassion. And again, learn of Christ. As Brandon said, he was meek. There's only two men in the Bible that's ever said they were meek, and that was Moses and Christ. And one man defined meekness as strength under control. 
you got a stallion, a, a, a horse that's been broken, and he still has all the power he had before, but now he's broken. You can put a saddle on him, put a bit in his mouth, and you can ride him. And he could throw you if he wanted to, but it's strength under control. And you might have the ability to win the argument, to make the other person look stupid. But if you are walking with Christ, then you will have that meekness, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, you will exhibit strength under control. So be full of the Spirit, walk with Christ, and don't take it personally. Good answers. Good answers. Um, here's a two-part question. What advice do you have in receiving criticism? And how do you sort out what is legitimate and what is not? Signed, Danny Thursby. Appreciate your willingness to put your name on your question. How do you receive criticism? I mean, I've never been criticized. A lot of people come to me with stuff that's wrong. <laughs> I'll go first on this and give somebody else the opportunity to think about it. In reality, I think about two things. What are they criticizing me for? And then who is criticizing me? And so what are they criticizing me for? If, if they're saying, I don't think you, you know, we should have, you're wrong about women preachers. No, Bible's on my side. Your criticism is based upon your opinion and not, not biblical truth. So what, what are you criticizing me for? And then number two, who is criticizing me? And then, if you've said something, uh, there's some questions in here about travel league baseball and stuff, you know. If I've preached a sermon on church faithfulness, and the people who are critical are the ones that are not faithful in church, I go, well, they, they feel wounded, you know. They've taken a personal shot from a, a message, and I need to consider the source of the criticism. So those are two things, and is it, is it founded? Is it grounded? And then... Once you get those two out of the way, you, you then weigh and say, all right, Lord, I just pray, help me, discern. If they're right or I missed something, and uh, th that's the way I would do it. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? I'm not above calling names. Yeah. How? What advice do you have on receiving criticism, and how do you sort out what is legitimate and what is not? Yeah. So, somebody else want to weigh in on that? I, I'd just say, like, that, you know, my mentor always said that in most criticism, even if it's 1% of the 100%, there's a grain of truth in there somewhere. And so you need to really work hard to try to find out what that is. Obviously, assess it biblically. Is there criticism? Are they right in fact? Um, and if they are, and the hard, this is a harder thing, is, is being willing to repent. Repent to that person if you've, if you've done something. If you've said something that's untrue, having the guts to get up in front of the church and say, hey, I got wound up and I said this, and let me correct that a little bit here because I, 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 it was either misunderstood or I just said it wrong and own what's yours to own. Now, don't be a doormat and own everything just to make things go away, but own what's yours to own and uh, look for the grain of truth and dismiss the rest you know, under, under the heading of love and grace. Good. This is probably directed toward me, and I'll answer first. You guys can weigh in. How do you comfort members missing 10 to 12 Sundays a year or confront, not comfort? <laughs> hey, they don't, write, they don't write in times Roman 11 point here. 
Um, how do you confront members missing 10 to 12 Sundays a year for travel baseball? How do you discipline for non-attendance? Well, I'm typically verse-by-verse verse preaching. I just preach topical messages to tick some of y'all off and get you out of your comfort zone. If you go verse-by-verse, verse, what will happen is you will develop a high view of the Word of God. And your people will develop a high a view of the Word of God. And you have to be careful disciplining people for non-attendance because you can discipline yourself out of a church. So I feel like if people are attending on a regular or even semi-regular basis, to me, that's not something that I'm going to go confront. That's not something that I personally feel like I need to go say, it's travel ball or us. I feel like the Word of God is sufficient through the preaching of the Word to work that out. And as long as people are attending on a semi-regular basis, like I said in my sermon, I feel like they're encountering the Word of God, and I'm trusting the Word of God to work that out. And so um, I think it was Jay Adams that said preaching is biblical counseling. As long as someone's getting a counseling session from the Word of God periodically, I'm trusting that it's going to work. And some of you may have a higher view of church attendance. You may say that's, they don't need to be a member here. That's fine. We'll see you know, how that works for you and how it works for us. That's just my view, and so I wouldn't. But now, I'm not above telling somebody, don't you think you guys at the ball field too much? But I don't do it in a sense of, I'm here, you're wrong, this needs to be addressed. Um, I found most time kids grow out of it. I would just add to that, um, one thing you shouldn't do, in my opinion, and I saw this firsthand growing up, me and... Brian Harrell grew up in the same church, and there were a lot of times when there were issues in the church, the pastor would just take liberty, and on that particular Sunday morning or Sunday night, he would blow it out, and there was no question of who he was aiming it towards and what, why it was being said, and that, that never usually is never going to turn out good. Resentment, bitterness, anger, if you feel like it's something you need to address, like Harrell said, go to him one-on-one -on -one and address it not as you're the offended party but you're the concerned party and hey I'm concerned for, for you and as your pastor I see this and I want to try to help you with this and I think if you approach it that way they'll at least hear you out they may not change but at least they'll hear you out and then another thing you might consider too is and I get it the bylaws are not the Bible, but if you have scriptural bylaws based on the Bible, then you may need to refer to your bylaws, too, because your bylaws are going to tell you how to handle some of that stuff. So, There was one uh, point that it, uh, actually Pastor Jeff Johnson mentioned and talking about church discipline and church discipline being seen only as basically kicking someone out of church. But it's a whole process, right? And uh, <clears throat> how, how powerful it is, uh, just as a pastor, just loving, actually loving people. And like I, I mentioned in my sermon, the visiting house to house. You know, if, you, if your pastor, and you have the kind of relationship with him where he's coming by or he's calling, not to say, where were you Sunday, but that, just say, hey, I missed you. How can I be praying for you this week? And that kind of stuff. You're, you're going to feel compelled, not, 
not out of manipulation, but just out of love to you want to be around those people. And so by, by loving them, uh, I think if they're filled with the Holy Spirit, that they're going to be naturally attracted to those relationships and they're going to miss it when they're gone, whereas maybe they never experienced something like that before. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't have to just be, oh, they missed a few and now, okay, you're no longer a member, you know, but, but all the love that goes on in between sure. that God will use. Sure. I'm going to try to read this one, <clears throat> and my eyes are not that good. And to be honest with you, your handwriting's worse. Since many pastors here are looking for a home church, do you take a church? Well, your eyes are bad too. Uh, presenting yourself to a, do you? Do you? Do you take a chance presenting yourself to a needy church that may have strong roots as missionary or free will um, change their name <clears throat> or change their names to camouflage their basic roots? Basically, if you're looking for a church home, I'm, I'm going to read between the lines here. If you're looking for a church home, do you take a chance and go to a free will Baptist church and try to work it out? Um, I don't know. Why don't we ask somebody who took a free will Baptist church what they would do? Anybody here take a free will Baptist church? Um, yeah, me. <laughs> um, That's how I treat my friends. First, first of all, I would say do nothing under pretense. You're wasting your time if you do anything under pretense because it's going to come out, and when it does, you're going to be in far worse shape than you would have been. And so... You level, you're clear, you're plain, you're honest. And even if it's information that you don't feel like has to be put forth at that time, go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that way everything's out. There's no question. And love people, be patient with people. Um, I'll, I'll give you the advice my pastor gave me when they were about to call me where I pastor. And most people were telling me I needed to run for the hills. That was pretty much the advice I was getting is don't, don't do it. You're wasting your time. It won't go anywhere. But my pastor told me this. Well, first of all, he said, follow the Lord. If the Lord says go, you got to go. But he said this to me. He said, those roots run deep. He said, and you don't pull them up all at once. And that was good advice. You... You have to understand that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm -hmm. And here's what I found that I struggle with in my own self. Don't do anything that you do to get the approval of any other pastor, of any other church, of any other individual. You're answering to one, and that's God. And if you do what pleases him, if it's what it is for five years or ten years under your pastorate, then it'll be what it is. It was that way when he loved them when you came there. And he's going to love them if you blow it up and have to leave. Because they're his sheep. They're his people. And so be patient. Only worry about pleasing the Lord. Don't be a people pleaser. And be patient and take your time. And you will watch things, especially when... And I didn't know. I, I didn't go to seminary. I didn't go to a place that told me I needed to preach verse by verse. 
I spent the first year and a half of pastoring beating my head against the wall every Saturday night because I'd read the whole Bible and didn't have anything to say the next day. <laughs> and in tones of thunder, one night on a Saturday when I was finally fed up with that, God said in my heart, it's Tons in the text, thunder. dummy. And so I started drilling down in the text and started preaching verse by verse, mm -hmm. and lights started coming on in minds and in hearts. And it wasn't my eloquence. It wasn't my intelligence. <clears throat> it was the book. And I didn't, have to, I didn't have to say, let's change this or let's do this. They were saying it to me. And so if... Number one, God has to call you. If he's not calling you to do that, then stay away from it because you'll never get it done. But if he is, don't worry about the church down the road. Don't worry about your buddies. I'll give you another example. When I went there, they had a female song leader. And I was almost embarrassed to have a guest preacher. I mean, maybe you're okay with female song leader. If you are, that's fine. I had a problem with it, but I knew that everybody else around me had problem with it but what should I have done right when I went there when God called me there that was going on he knew about it mm -hmm. so I just took my hands off of it and if I felt like I needed to have somebody in I had them in if they called me out on it I said look I'm waiting on the Lord yeah and if that's not if that's not enough for you you don't have to accept my invitation you don't have to come back and the Lord worked it out. Yeah. And he can do it a whole lot better than you can. And here's the thing. He can do in a millisecond what you can't do in a decade. And so be patient. Love the people. Have the people in your heart. And don't, don't make a move without clear direction from the Lord. Yeah. And you'll be okay. okay. Um, but... I mean, other than that, I don't really know what to tell you. That's, that's, that's good. That's, that's what let, works. Let me, let me give you a good illustration of that. Everybody familiar with John MacArthur? Grace to you. You got a commentary from him on Zechariah. When John MacArthur went to Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California in 1969, still the pastor there, when he went there in 69, the church was a Methodist church, had women elders, baptized infants. He's still the pastor there. They don't have women elders. They don't baptize infants. The slogan of grace to you is unleashing God's truth one verse at a time. You know what John MacArthur did? He started preaching chapter 1, verse 1. He went through books and he let the word of God work. And that's what my... I mean, he's the perfect il I mean, illustration and example of that. Okay, next question. What has helped you balance between expositional series... And topical sermons as needed. Who here preaches topical sermons? Besides me. <laughs> Here's what I do. I, I agree with everything Brandon said. I got tired of beating my head up against the wall on Saturday night trying to find something to preach. And so what I do is I typically do preach verse by verse. But what I discovered was there are things in the Bible that you would never cover properly if you didn't take time and deal with a topic. And people say, well, you shouldn't preach anyway, but this way. Well, the people that wrote our Bible didn't preach verse by verse. They preached topical messages, and God used it. The, diff the deal is you've got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I preach in a, through a book of the Bible. I'm going through Jude. I'll finish it this Sunday. The reason I do that is because I look at the verses and I say, man, 
Tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, I'm going to stand before a group of people, and I've got to bring a message from these verses right here, figure it out. forces me to do that. But I also try to be sensitive to the church and where they are, and the church that I'm pastoring is not used to verse-by-verse expositional preaching. And I'm going through the book of Jude, which is only 25 verses. They're hearing stuff they've never heard before. This is deep, weighty stuff on them at Lee Creek that's heard it for 15 years, 16 years, they're used to it. So I feel like at Mother's Day, I need to give a Mother's Day message. Father's Day, I need to give a Father's Day message. You say, well, you a liberal? No, I'm a pastor. That's where my congregation is. That's where I need to meet them at. And I'm going to walk them through these holidays, and I'm going to give them a steady diet of the Word of God in between and what's going to happen instead of trying to ram deep Bible truths down their throat I'm going to walk them along and allow them to grow with me. So if you don't like topical preaching, you don't like holiday preaching, I hope you pastor a mature church that can take what you're dealing out. Otherwise, enjoy moving your furniture about every three years and finding another church you can start over in. I would add to that. I don't know why we so often pit topical and expositional against each other. I don't know if you're aware of this. You can preach a topical message. It's expositional. Yeah. I did some of that. I would preach a series on the attributes of God. And you're not going to cover the omnipotence of God in one text. Yeah. And if you're really going to cover it, then you're not going to just preach one message with all the texts that deal with it. So we would take two or three weeks and deal with various texts that dealt with the omnipotence of God. And we expound those in a topical series. But you've got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and feel like you need to do that. That needs to be done. And that's the thing that people say, if you're doing that, you're not following the leadership of God. Well, I've got to find out what God wants for the next book, for the next subject. Yeah. And I took Mother's Days and Father's Days and Christmases, and I, I love to preach on the incarnation. And what better time than Christmas, right? You do it in July, you're going to get funny looks. Yeah. Why are we talking about Jesus being born in there's, July? There's one here that does that. That's fine. <laughs> but why not take the opportunity when their mind's already being misdirected about Christmas and direct it rightly? So yeah. I did stuff like that. Plus, I don't know, maybe y'all need this, but I needed a break every now and then. Yeah. From being in the midst of the book of Hebrews or yeah. some deep state, for heaven's sake, give me a week to just exhort my men at Father's Day or encourage the women folk on Mother's Day just so I can just take just put it in neutral for five seconds. Yeah, just don't idolize one style of preaching. You can, you can idolize topical, you can idolize expositional, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, the needs of your own congregation. And act accordingly. I mean, God has given us the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. Let him do that. Yeah, we can go as long as you want. Some of these I I don't want to get to. I think that there's, I think where sermon preparation gets shortchanged in a lot of modern preaching is application. I think that a lot of the attention gets on the exposition and the, the, the Greek words and all this, and then application is sort of tacked onto the end. I, I don't need to pit a topical message or my verse-by-verse expo- exposition on Mother's Day. I don't believe that the Gideons should come out with a mother's Bible that only contains Proverbs mm-hmm. 31. Yeah. <laughs> I believe a mother can read the whole Bible, and, and so if you think about it for just a little bit, 
you can even, as you're preaching verse by verse, say, this, if you're a mother in here today, this is how this applies. Look, this is how it looks like in the life of a mother. Yeah. And, uh, but it just takes a little extra work. Sure. Anybody else? Here's a good question. What's your opinion on the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 4 and Titus 1, 6 as it relates to godly, faithful men who is struggling with a rebellious child? I've answered enough of these. Some of you other guys have to pick up the slack. I'm not talking again until Greg or Jesse or Lonnie talk. Is that mic on? I have no children. You guys, you guys hear me out there? I have no children. Uh, so when, uh, when I was approached by the church that I was a member of, we were the elders. Did uh, it come up? Yeah. Hear me now? Yeah. Well, I, I have no children. And uh, when I was... <laughs> I don't know if I've ever said that three times in public... <laughs> In any event, you know my, my status with children. When, <laughs> that's when hilarious. I, when I was that's, approached that's by hilarious. Uh, the, the pastors of the church that I was a member at, they needed some pastoral assistance. They're a very small church, and I seemed to be the most likely candidate for that. They approached me and asked me if I'd be willing to do it. And I had some other baggage, but I pointed out to them that I had no children, and I needed to know how that would affect their perception of, of me being able to, uh, to be a pastor. And the question that they asked me was, uh, without getting extremely personal, they wanted to know if that was a decision that my wife and I had made or if that was just in the providence of God. Well, it was in the providence of God. So they, they understood that, that uh, we were very pro-family and we encouraged people to, to have children and raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So I didn't struggle with, uh, with a wayward child, but it does seem clear that Part of the qualifications for a pastor to come and lead a congregation is balanced by his capability to lead his own family well. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of things that have to be taken into consideration. It's hard to make a clear and definitive statement without knowing more information. But I would say, generally speaking, if a, if a man has not demonstrated the ability to lead his family well, to control his children that are that are under his roof, then that should give a congregation pause before they issue a call. I agree with that, and I would just add to that too that uh, it doesn't say that your children have to be saved. I mean, we, we don't save anybody. We all understand grace, and I think sometimes a pastor can see his child that's not saved. He's 16, 17, and and maybe feel like he's inadequate as a pastor. But I believe the idea, as long as your children are in subjection to you as the authority in their life, that that is what maintains that qualification. And that comes from them watching you every wow. single day, living with you, seeing how you react. And as they see that and they witness that and they see the Christ-likeness in your life and the faithfulness that you exhibit then they will, even if they don't respect your religion, even if they don't love your God, they will respect you because at least you're being faithful to what you have uh, said you believe, what your convictions are.
And uh, I think that that's, uh, that doesn't disqualify a person just because their child's not saved. Now, if they are an open rebellion to their parents and you can't seem to get them in line and they're constantly uh, questioning your authority, then now we are talking about something that may need to be addressed. And, you know, I don't know how many of you listened to the Faithful Expositor, but John O. Sims and the group out there, they just had a pastor elder in the church yeah. that stepped down yeah. because he had a child that was unruly. Don't know the details, just heard about it on the podcast. They wanted to make it public. And uh, that's a really hard thing to do. I've never been in a position where we've had to deal with that. Uh, but I can't imagine, but I appreciate their faithfulness to the word of God. We didn't write the book. We didn't write the qualifications, but we are to be faithful to it and uphold those qualifications, maintain them. So, yeah. Good answers. What is Harold's favorite sola and why? My friends treat me like I treat them. Uh, I don't know if I could name all five of them. I would, I would probably go with sola, uh, let's see if I say this right, scriptura, huh? Solo scriptura. I, I would say scripture alone. I believe the sufficiency of scripture is what's lacking today, and I believe it's the answer to our, our problems today. And I know a lot of people have on their, like, voicemail, solo deo gloria, and they teach their kids to say that when they're three years old and stuff like that. And... Um, I'll just give you my opinion here. Since you asked me some stuff, I'm just going to give you more than you asked for. Quit speaking Latin to people. For crying out loud, we, we speak English. Latin's for doctors and medical students. Quit writing this stuff on your church sanctuary walls. Lost people don't come in here and read Latin and fall under conviction. We, we, we broke away from Catholicism who had a Bible in Latin. For crying out loud, if you believe in Sola Scriptura, quit going back to Latin and put it in our own language. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Who put that question in there? This is the reaction you wanted. <laughs> Can I tell you what I think his favorite solo is? Mm. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> hey, look, if y'all didn't get a belly laugh out of this conference, did you really come? Can Lee Creek get a list of all the preachers, where they preach, pastor, and how we can listen to them? Um, we have everybody stand up on Friday night and tell us where they're from and where they pastor. And um, I, I pastor First Baptist Church of Roland. Our messages are not recorded. It, I don't know if we could get a list. Maybe I could work on that. Maybe for next year I could do something like that. Uh, just Google the names of the men you meet and uh, see what you can find online. I understand the doctrines of grace. God chooses. I get it. Elect or election, confusing. In election, more than one chooses. Can you help decipher the difference? Well, you don't believe what I read? <laughs> All right, look. No, that's what it says. More than one chooses. Can you? I don't. I don't understand the question. And maybe I'm. All right, speak on that because I'm. I'm not tracking. 
all this stuff. No, I'd just simply say that, that yeah, in a, in a political election, we all have a vote, but in the, in the economy of God, in the, in the kingdom of God, there's only, there's only one vote, and uh, it's God's vote. And we know that God uses a lot of avenues to draw people and to bring them into the kingdom, but ultimately it's at his will and at his choosing, at his calling. Yeah. And so um, when God calls, God calls. If, and if God doesn't call, then, you're, then you are reprobating your sin. And, and, and that's where you'll remain until the time that God calls. And so, um, yeah, grace is from God and elections from God and from God alone. And that's basically what we preach. You know, there's a lot of words, a lot of things we throw around, but ultimately our position uh, when we talk about doctrines of grace is that salvation is of God, period. Mm -hmm. Salvation is of God. It's not of anyone else. It's not of me. It's not of my, my mom and dad or even the great spiritual heritage you might have. It comes from God. And so, yeah, And when we talk about political election, multiple people choose them, but God is the only one that calls and chooses in, in his kingdom for salvation. So. Good answer. I've heard some people say that God has a vote and Satan has a vote. And then you cast the final vote. Oh. That's false doctrine. Yes, it is. The Bible says it's not by the will of man, but by the will of God that we're saved. Yeah. And salvation is of the Lord. Yeah. There's only one who chose to save me, and it was the right. Lord. Right. It wasn't me. I wasn't looking to be saved. I didn't even know I was lost yeah. until God revealed it to me. Right. Good answers. I think we've heard that throughout. If you've been through the whole conference, you've heard the gospel preached over and over and over, and you've heard men and women exhorted to be saved. And You must respond to the gospel. You're not going to be saved against your will. You're not going to be saved by uh, just sitting quietly in the corner and hoping it takes place. There is a call that goes out. There's a response that must be made. Election is God's infinite wisdom above us. Okay, here's a good question for the panel. How do we learn from the context of the New Testament and the events in church and Baptist history without becoming trapped in the past or rejecting the progress and maturation of the church? a good question for the panel. <laughs> I, I would just simply say this, this occurs by the grace of God. And you just need to pray and study and pray and study. And if you learn from history, you learn from the New Testament, you... I mean, we run that... You're always going to run the risk of majoring on something, you know, I... I'm a, I'm a big history fan. I read a lot of biographies. That's how I choose to, to learn history is from the people that lived then. But, I mean, if you spend too much time in the past, be living too much in 82, you know, you'll, uh, you won't enjoy the moment. So that's just a deep. Anybody want to weigh in on that? I, I think there's a connotation in that. I may be mis, misunderstanding it, but I feel like maybe there's a connotation there because there is a tendency, and I've seen this, there's a tendency to either reinterpret or to retell the past to try to line it up with what we think the scriptures say. Um, we were talking to someone this week about Shubal Stern, and every Baptist group in the world wants to claim Shubal Stern. 
Yeah. If you go to Sandy Creek, North Carolina, where he started uh, the church there, that pretty much every Baptist church in America probably came out uh, of has, has some links to. You'll find that the Southern Baptists claim him, uh, and then some of those say that he was Calvinistic. Some say he was Arminian, and they and everybody wants to pick the people's terms. Um, and so we try to reinterpret him and his ministry to fit what we're saying. And so I guess, first of all, I'd say first be honest with the past, be honest with the history, and understand this. And I've, I've run into this a lot in the last year and a half. God does so, some things sometimes that may not necessarily fall completely in line with how we think God ought to do it, or even, in a sense, how God has said he would prefer to do it. Yeah. God's dealing with a depraved humanity here. He's dealing with imperfect people. And sometimes they do imperfect things, and God can still use that to achieve his ends. And so, I, I mean, there are things that I think are the ideal way that I believe God would work and would want to work, but sometimes God directs me to do things that don't necessarily all fall in line with my mindset on that. Mm -hmm. And you have to get to the place to where I'm okay with that. Know what God said for you to do and do that, even if it doesn't all make sense and line up with where you think God would rather you be. Because if God's telling you to be here, then, then you obviously wouldn't rather you be over here. Yes. And there's imperfection in this world, and there's imperfection even in his churches. And we just have to, we have to realize that, recognize that, and just walk in the light that we've got and be persuaded in our own mind. I think there was a connotation there for that. If I missed that, I'm going to No, I, I think you gave as good as answer as any of us could. This is a question for y'all and not me. So they want your opinion on my message. Based on Harold's message, shouldn't we advocate for Christian theonomy? You guys think we should advocate for Christian theonomy? No chuckling, this is a serious question. So I'm no expert on theonomy, but I'm a pastor that's involved politically. And so, but I wouldn't consider myself, at least by the definition as I understand it, which changes a lot as a, at least as a Christian nationalist as I understand it, okay? There's some people that would say I am because of the things that I'm involved in. But I work, I work with politicians working legislation on the issue of abortion. I think there's a difference between saying I'm a Christian nationalist or theonomist and saying I'm willing to advocate for the things that I see as clearly biblical in the public sphere. Um, I'm going to try to pass laws that defend innocent life. Um, I heard someone say, and I, and I think I was actually reading a book on Roger Williams recently, and Roger Williams got his own set of problems about some things where he arrived in his life and his theology, okay? But Williams advocated really what is, was the American principle and set up the first great experiment for soul freedom in, in the world. And, um, and he basically said this. He said, we, we, we can't legislate it, it, the first five commandments, right? Uh, and say, you're going to worship this way and you're going to show up or we're going to put you in jail, you're going you're gonna to be a church member, you're going to be this, you're going to honor God this way, but he said it's within the realm of government to advocate the second table and how people deal with one another, you're not going to kill each other, you're not going to steal from one another, you're not going to do that, I think we can and should 
do that. And I think what I do falls within, within that realm. And so I don't think where I would definitely agree with what Brother Harold said, I, I don't think you can ever pass a law that says you're gonna, everybody's going to honor God and everybody's going to worship God. They're going to show up to church. Well, we've seen that experiment play out, okay? You know, we're Baptists, and, and we never end up on the top of that heap. Right. We just don't, um, because that's not the way our, our church polity is set up. That's not the way our ecclesiology functions. And so we advocate for an autonomous local church. Well, that doesn't jibe in, in that kind of system. Now, again, I think there's some veins of so-called Christian nationalism. I get on board with a lot of what they say. But um, I think when we're advocating for how people uh, are defended, how they're cared for, I believe it's the government's job to protect the church's ability to do what the church sees fit under its own authority. Outside of that, they need to stay the heck out of our business. Um, and But they do have the function of protecting us. And so I think we can advocate for the biblical principles within that realm without getting into the advocate saying we got to pass legislation that says everybody's going to be involved in a specific... Uh, even if you just say you're going to go to church, period, let alone a particular church, which is where it se- seems to end up. And it's like Brother Harold's kind of fond of saying it's like... You know, communism, anytime you tell somebody that has a really strong view of that and you say, man, we've kind of seen that take place and, like, it doesn't work out. One group takes power and they force a particular form of worship on, on other people and, they, and it's like communists, right? Well, that wasn't real communism, right? Well, it wasn't real Christian nationalism. Well, okay, but that's the only examples we got to look at and uh, I don't think you're any more perfect than those guys were, so... Well, that's that. Last question. There was another question about how to deal with parents at Little League and all that. It was kind of what we dealt with earlier. So this is the last question. How do you define a church, and how is Baptist ecclesiology different than Protestant ecclesiology? The problem I see with the question is Protestant includes a large group of varying ecclesiologies. So I can speak to this and let you guys collect your thoughts and back me up whenever you get done or disagree with me. Baptists historically have been congregational with elder oversight. Many of the churches have a plurality of elders. Some of the churches have a single elder. It all depended on size and necessity of the church. But the congregation made most of the major decisions. In your Presbyterian model... That means, Presbyterian means elder. You have elders making all the decisions. The congregation is not consulted. This has crept into Reformed Baptist life. Many Reformed Baptist churches don't allow their congregations to make any decisions. They consider that to be foolish. Well, maybe, but that's not what your Baptist forefathers did. There should be a mixture of pastoral oversight, things that pastors have absolutes on, and things the congregation weighs in on I tend to divide it on the the doctrinal line I let the congregation make all financial decisions approve budgets that sort of thing hire the pastor fire the pastor if they have biblical grounds for it and I let the pastor be responsible for exhorting and teaching scripture and expecting the congregation to adhere to it and having oversight in the day-to-day operations I think that's historically balanced in what you see in early Baptists you can disagree with me but you won't be the first one to be wrong, probably won't be the last. When we look at Protestant ecclesiology, you either have the Presbyterian model where elders make all the decisions, 
The reason you see that is because these people are including infants into their congregation. No one's letting a three-year-old vote. And if you baptize everyone as an, in, as an infant and make them a member of your church, you're going to have a high, high amount of lost people in your congregation. Why would we let lost people make decisions? Baptists differ in this area in that we baptize believers who profess faith in Christ. Therefore, we have a regenerate congregation. If they don't act regenerate, we remove them or counsel them through church discipline. So since we have a regenerate church membership, something that infant baptizing Protestants don't have, we can trust our congregations to make decisions. You go into the snod model where you have a little group of people that make rules for all the churches. This is the Methodist model. Methodists also baptize infants, have high amounts of lost people in the congregation. I wouldn't let lost people make a decision. But I think at Lee Creek Baptist Church, even today, the 60 or 70 plus members we have in the church could all get in one room and make a decision on the color of the new carpet and not get mad at each other and the Lord be glorified and we'd all go home smiling. It's because it's got a lot of saved people in it. That doesn't ensure that if you're a member of Lee Creek, you're saved. But we strive to preach the gospel and ensure that people act like it. That view of ecclesiology and church government is drastically different from what you see in other branches of Protestantism. Anybody else take off? The first part of that question was... One at a time, though. I'm sorry, define the church. It's a called-out assembly. So you can't be part of the assembly if you've not been called out. Yep, I was going to say that. And then to go back to the elder situation, we heard a great message from 1 Peter chapter 5 on that very thing. Taking the oversight, not lording over God's heritage. And I think in the Presbyterian model, the Synod model, and all the, all the Protestant models, you see oversight and lording. Lording is making all the decisions. We're going to tell you how to do it, and you don't question us. We're the lords. That's, I mean, that's the word there. And so we are to take oversight, and again, Brother Harold did a great job explaining that. We, we guide, we oversee, we, we counsel, we you know, give advice, we lead by example. But at the end of the day, we aren't going to force people to follow that. It's going to be up to the congregation what that church wants to set aside as common practices that they're going to adhere to as a congregation. Anybody else? Now, now, folks, Jesse's kind of like an Airedale dog. He's a lot smarter than he looks. <laughs> hey, uh, the red one, the red one. Hey, listen. We got five minutes left, and uh, I gave up five minutes of my sermon for Vincent to give us a mission report. He said I was done. I told him I cut the middle section out so I could keep my closing. I want to take the five minutes back and tell each and every one of you how much I appreciate you. If you didn't show up, Missy and I couldn't eat all this by ourselves. You make this a good conference. I don't make this a good conference. A lot of you thank me, you thank my wife, you thank Lee Creek, and you should. I mean... There's a lot of work that goes into this. Joseph Allen is the pastor here. You know, his willingness to allow this to happen. Ron, who leads singing, 
his wife Sammy who works tirelessly in the kitchen. I could list all the members of Lee Creek that are here. None of this would happen without their labors. But in reality, if you don't show up, none of this happens. It's just, it's just a church meeting. And um, I appreciate each and every one of you. I appreciate all these men that have, have prepared messages to preach. And, you know, Alan's said it before, and we've talked about it, not despising small things. I give out these Backwoods Baptist stickers, and that's, that's a podcast that I produce, if you don't know that. I do a podcast every other week. Last week I talked about church history. There were small meetings, three or four or five Christians from three or four churches getting together and strategizing how they were going to evangelize their part of Oklahoma. I pastor one of those small churches that met in 1929 at the association meeting. The church today that I pastor runs 12 people. Okay, It's a small church, but that doesn't deter me. Small things are what God has used. He's always used the small, the insignificant. This conference is small and insignificant. None of these men that have preached, and they've all preached spectacular sermons. You don't see their names on flyers for national conferences. They're faithful men with small churches and and congregations that dot across our land, and they're faithful men. And you all are the same way. And when local church pastors who love God, love Christians, get together around a plate of barbecue and talk. It does good things. And I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate your support of my ministry, your support of this conference. In reality, it takes all of us. And the Lord has somehow made me the informal, I don't know what you call me. Danny Thursby calls me the Pope. Baptist Pope. Somehow that title's fallen upon me, but in reality, I couldn't do it without you. So I appreciate you guys being my friends. Appreciate you all being here. Eddie Ragsdale, did you make it for this meeting? Oh, there you are. Why don't you close us in a word of prayer and we'll dismiss with your prayer.